Welcome to the Awakening Podcast. You can find all our episodes on awakeningpodcast.org. We're also on BitChute. And my personal channel is on YouTube. And this one should be able to, because we're not touching about the poison dart and things like that. So we should be okay. To, and it's a, an important subject. I'm also a podcasting coach because I've got four other podcasts, meditation, speaking, crypto. And you'll find, and Polish, you'll find everything on bio.link forward slash podcaster. Usually I get bombarded with people to come on my show, but this time I actually reached out to get the guest on the show because I think it's such an important topic. So we've got basically a US Navy vet. He's an author and a speaker and talking on a very important subject. Please welcome Sean Hamilton. Hello. Yeah, thank you for having me, Roy. It's a, it's a pleasure to be on, man. I, I really appreciate the opportunity to come on and speak about this uh, this important issue. Yeah, so I suppose you might just let the listeners know first too, Sean. Oh well, uh, like you said, I'm a I'm a Navy veteran, but um, I think what what brought me here uh, into this kind of place in my life was that I'm I'm a husband to a a partner uh, and a partner to a survivor of sexual violence, and um, you know that's that's kind of where the advocate and activist you know kind of side of me kind of has has started to grow is in the journey, the path of walking, what it is to be a partner. And that's, you know, that's kind of where I found myself, um, just kind of called to write this book and uh, kind of get out in front of the world and, and start talking about this issue that affects so many people. Okay. So I suppose, I mean, it, it, it probably started with a conversation with your wife. So like, was it something that she kind of kept to herself? So you may just tell us that story, how the whole lot kind of came about and how you became aware. Yeah. Um. So actually two weeks after my wife and I started dating. So like really early on into our relationship, she got sexually assaulted by, you know, kind of quote uh, a friend of hers that had been in her life for a number of years. And it turns out that that guy actually had sexually assaulted uh, multiple girls within this same friend group, um, probably six or seven. And my wife decided that she was going to be the last one. And so two weeks into our relationship, um, we found ourselves kind of going through uh, the legal process and, and, and at the same time trying to go through the, the mental health and physical health recovery journey. And, you know, that was right at the beginning of our relationship. So our relationship was kind of, it, it started out with a lot of trauma. It started out with a lot of really intense conversations around uh, this topic and navigating a justice system that unfortunately is incredibly broken when it comes to dealing and addressing with this issue and seeing it firsthand rather than just kind of hearing it on the news and, you know, kind of hearing it anecdotally, uh, getting to witness it firsthand, sitting in the courtrooms and, uh, you know, sitting in the legal offices and kind of seeing how the justice system fails so many people um, from losing the rape kits to, uh, you know, the negotiations to keep the perpetrators, uh, I guess, good name um, intact. And, you know, the King County Prosecutor's Office in Seattle dropping the criminal case against them when seven women had come forward and and filed suit. And so that's kind of where it, this all started was was really just seeing it from the, you know, the deck plate level, seeing my wife go through a lot of the struggle, um, you know, holding her so many nights while the tears just flowed. And then as we started to, you know, go through the recovery process, once we kind of gotten out of the acute phase, which I, uh, you know, I kind of call that where there's like a kind of like this short little window, I guess, and it can be a pretty big window of time in which somebody is like really kind of deep within that trauma. And when we got through that aspect and we started kind of re-engaging with intimacy, re-engaging uh, with our sex life and, and kind of going through the ups and downs and the challenges of that, it really kind of gave us a moment uh, of reflection. And, you know, when I started, when I started to see how well she was doing recovery wise, um, it just started asking questions about like, what did I do? Like, how did I show up in moments that were good? How did I show up in moments that um, I could have been better? How did I completely fall on my face and fail? Like, I really wanted to hear the feedback 
Um, and as we started having all these conversations, we started to kind of really see uh, how critical of a role that just not just me, but like, like the, the role of being a partner to somebody who's going through the recovery process from this particular type of trauma, how important that role really was. And it got us to kind of open up that door and investigate. And that kind of led me onto a, you know, a five-year research project of, of really trying to, to pick apart a lot of the different aspects so that I could put together a resource because there just wasn't anything, you know, when I was sitting there struggling nights, you know, kind of questioning whether I wanted to even continue in this relationship. Um, you know, it just got heavy. It got really, really challenging. And I was looking for resources. I was looking for somebody to, you know, kind of show me the light and, you know, talk about my experience and, you know, really looking for validation and looking for some kind of way forward. And there just wasn't anything. And, you know, that, that's a big part of why I'm doing what I'm doing is just because there isn't anything that talks about what it's like to be a partner, what it's like to be on the, you know, the other side of this recovery process from a partnership and relationship perspective. And so that's why I'm here. And that's kind of like, you know, where the start it came from. And now it's, you know, now the heart, you know, a lot of the hard part I say is done just in the sense that, you know, the recovery process and writing the book is, is, is kind of behind us a little bit, but now the the real work really begins is to, is to get out there and talk to as many people as possible. Okay. Well, perfect. And I'm just curious, cause I mean, obviously uh, you're, you're a vet and, you know, did it, go into your head once you found out this because you said you found out at an early age to kind of seek revenge because I know that can happen as well and I know it's not the right way to go because it, actually I and I know this is an international thing with corrupt courts and prosecutors that should be you know they should be I don't know how they actually look at themselves in the mirror because they're so evil they they don't care about the individual they care about the dollar and like for you, did you have that kind of urge? I want to beat the shit out of this guy or like, what was the kind of thought process in your head? Yeah, man, I, 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 you know, my wife's brother is a, is a veteran as well. He's a Marine. And when this, when this all was going down, uh, it was he and I sitting next to each other in the courtroom. And one of the things that was, we found so broken about this process was that um, at least in King County, how they ran their courtroom was that the, the guy, the perpetrator, um, you know, this rapist is sitting literally just in a pew right in front of us. Like we're sitting in a pew waiting for our court case to get called. And, and he and his lawyer are just sitting right there in front of us. And it's just blood boiling. Like you're seeing red the whole time. And, you know, I'd be lying if you, you don't have some thoughts of retribution. And I think that's a part of this process. It's a part of being, you know, near somebody that's, that's been harmed in such a, a, a deep way and looking for somebody to help with that concept of fairness or justice or whatever we want to call it, like just trying to balance the scales almost karmically. You're looking for somebody to help you do that because in a lot of ways, our um, power has kind of been handed over, right? We've given all of that power over to the court system to say, when somebody harms us, it's your job and responsibility to make it right. And, you know, we can't go out and get that street level, you know, vigilante justice. And that's a lot of the energy that sits inside the people that are kind of in the, you know, just the peripheral of these types of cases, as well as the people that are going through it. I'm sure survivors, like they, they feel that as well. And it's just this part of the experience that I, I do talk about in the book is that, um, how do we process that, those feelings? How do we process that energy of wanting to go out there and, and beat the shit out of somebody that has harmed our loved one in some way, right? And, and the way that I, you know, battle with it, and I don't have the answers for sure, because, it, you know, I, I wish I had all the answers there because it's so powerful of a feeling, right? Like to see somebody that's harmed your, your loved one in such a personally deep uh, and horrible way, uh, you, you just want to, sometimes you take it into your own hands and yet we can't. And so what do we do with that? And so I think I've, I, I come up with a way that I do it kind of from a, 
a writer's perspective, right? I, I kind of take the artistic approach of, okay, well, if I can't do it as a veteran, if I can't do it as a, as an individual human and go out and, and actually uh, beat the shit out of this guy, how can I do that from an artistic perspective? Like, how do I put that same level of energy into, you know, one writing this book and helping the world, but two, uh, the next project on my, you know, that, that I'm working on right now is kind of a, a novel and graphic novel where, we actually get to go out there and, you know, kind of implement that type of justice. And so I get to like creatively create this squad of, you know, kind of military veterans that go out and take care of people like this. And that's kind of how I put my, uh, you know, kind of put that energy into some place where I feel like it might be, I don't know if it's healthy, but it's just a way to deal with it where I'm not out there, you know, kind of in rage mode, seeing red and just, you know, beating the shit out of everybody that, uh, you know, is, I feel responsible for, you know, uh, not only this crime against, you know, one of my loved ones, but, you know, all the other millions of people out there who are suffering as well. So, And like with, uh, when I went down the rabbit hole, it was one I was staying away, but the satanic rituals that are going on and with high level politicians and everything, there was a lot of people that were abused victims that came out. And they actually started arresting them and putting them into uh, asylums. And and it was basically like in the UK and everything, because I've even had a guest on the show. And it's like police are involved, judges are involved. And I mean, like this goes deep and they're covering up their own, you know, circle of evil pedophilia. It's like there's just so much that it, people don't believe it but once you go down the route so i presume you have actually you know once this happened when you start pe- peeling off a few onion layers you go whoa this is 10 times or a million times worse than i ever could have imagined no it's uh it, yeah and i think that not only is it crazy at that level right when we jump down the rabbit holes and we start doing the research but like one of the biggest you know painful kind of realizations was in the you know, in the abuse, at least here in the, in America, where when I started kind of looking into how bad this problem is, like, how do we talk about the problem of child abuse uh, without it? You know, how do we bring it out of the realm of like the Jeffrey Epstein's where we know that those people are, are horrible and yet they're seem to be protected by this gigantic system. So we can rant and rave about that problem all we want to, but there's so uh, it, it's a very difficult process to go up against. And I don't think it re- is a true reflection of how bad the problem actually is, right? Like we could sit and, and think that, oh, well, the problem of pedophilia is at that level when really there's a giant problem that's within our own homes, like in, in across the country. It's like, you look at the stats for, um, you know, how much child abuse is, is, is happening. And then you try to think about the solutions to that. Like, we don't have rules around being a parent. We don't have rules around what it what it requires somebody to have a child. And so when we when we combine that with you know the the DSM five is a is a manual that the um, you know the Diagnosis and Statistics Manual uh, is just this I don't know it's a resource that the psychological and psychiatric communities use to diagnose all sorts of just illnesses and disorders and all these things. And they uh, finally put pedophilia actually in this manual. And they say that 5% of the world's population of men are afflicted with this um, uh, disorder of pedophilia that's incurable. It doesn't mean that 5% are out there actually acting upon it, but it means that 5% at least have a base desire and predilection to meet their sexual desires and gratifications from you know engaging in sexual activity with, with young minors and children. And when we, when we combine that, I know it's a, it's a lot to hold in your head all at once, but if we combine that number, the sheer volume of what that actually means when we talk about 5% of a global population of men, that's a very large number. And when we put that across like the population of American men and look at it kind of compared to the stats on child abuse in, the own, in their own homes, it's like, this means fathers brothers, uncles, grandfathers, right? Like anybody Even that has mothers, because people might mothers, realize right, that as right. well, that it's actually yeah. like there's women abusing women as well. Oh, totally. And uh, all different types of, you know, you know, parental 
abuse, access to children, and it becomes such a it becomes an overwhelming problem because it's like, you know, I'm over here writing a book and kind of diving into all of this research. And yet it's like, you know, I don't, I don't exist at the top echelons of power to be able to do anything about that. And it's like, it's scary when we think about what it would require to actually start addressing it, because how do we, how do we make sure that abuse isn't happening in the home? How do we, how do we, and it feels like we just end up in this very reactionary place where there's no, it's like very difficult to prevent and yet we spend, you know, so much of the time talking about the political thing up here when, you know, that just means that every day that goes by without solutions is another day that like hundreds, if not thousands of kids are being abused, uh, which turns them into survivors, which turns them, you know, into, uh, you know, kind of partners that are going to, you know, have a lot of suffering throughout their life. And that steps into the way of having a really positive and healthy relationships with not only their intimate partner, but people around them. And so it just becomes a really challenging conversation that uh, requires nuance and it requires these types of long form conversations to really get into the weeds about it. And uh, yet, you know, it's uncomfortable and not many people want to do it. Yeah. And the, the other thing as well is, unfortunately, a lot of pedophiles, they, they work as teachers or coaches. The, like Disney has been caught a lot. There was a load actually working there as well. Whether that's high end bringing in their own people, that's another you know another conversation. But I mean, you can look at it either way. But they tend to boy scouts, probably girl scouts as well. They're in the places that a child is actually supposed to feel safe. Like I went to a Christian brother school. Nothing happened to me, but I know that it was happening. You know, and it's it's such a horrible thing. And like, I remember where I grew up, uh, we knew that there was a girl that was abused by a father. And then there was like a stage that she just went wild. They used to be queuing up to sleep with her. We all knew it, but nobody done it. And that's the, that's the thing as well. Like we need to know, Hey, what should be done? Because even the reality is if you've got a proper teacher, they should be asking the questions, how, you know, how do we know it's gone? Like, I I, I, I dug this out because when my ch- my child is nine now, but when he was young, I read this a few times soon. And it's like, I said, no red flag. And it was just explaining what people can do and what's okay and what's not. As in like with a nurse and a doctor and what's not. And it, it, it registered with him. But unfortunately, not everybody's actually doing that. And I know you probably, you, you know, you're, you're look, that's another layer that you're taking off, but I'd like to kind of maybe touch on that as well. Yeah, I actually, uh, I saw, I think it, I saw this video of a woman talking about that kind of same thing um, where she stopped teaching her kid about stranger danger because she wanted her kids to be open and loving and not view people as strangers, but like view uh, behavior as appropriate or inappropriate. So really teaching her kids about what inappropriate behavior was. So if somebody comes to you and says, you know, this is a secret just between you and me, uh, that's inappropriate behavior. And to tell somebody about that, like to really communicate what behaviors are inappropriate. And if anybody's doing inappropriate behaviors, then, then tell somebody about that. And I feel like that is, that's, that's huge. That was like such a huge idea idea in terms of like, you know, cause I grew up with the whole stranger danger mindset. Like that was the, you know, that was the, that was the thing that was kind of law of the land at the time. And, uh, I, I really love that idea is to teach kids about inappropriate behavior. Um, another study that I came across was teaching kids actual anatomy, uh, and the, the real words for their, um, for their genitalia, for their you know, their body, um, and teaching them at a very young age, like the actual scientific words for what, uh, the parts of their body are, because what they found is that, you know, it seemed to suggest that, uh, you know, pedophiles or people that are going to abuse children would be a lot less likely to abuse some kid that actually knows the words that are around them. Because then that suggests that the environment that's around that kid is not one of silence. It's not one of secrecy, which is what is an element that's like required for, uh, you know, their their kind of operation in the shadows there to, to continue the abuse. And so um, I think that through education, really, that that's what it speaks to me uh, the most is like, education, education, education around these, you know, issues. And it starts at a young age so that, you know, kids don't feel afraid 
that they can't use fear to manipulate kids. And then to, to another point that you had made uh, is about auditing the access that we have to children at all of these different areas, right? Like, I mean, here in America, we get uh, abuse scandals coming out of pretty much every single religious organization that exists here. Uh, Catholic Church, of course, is the you know the one that comes to everyone's mind worldwide. Uh, but we just had one huge thing break around the Southern Baptist Convention. There's a huge thing around the Jehovah's Witnesses at this point. Uh, the Mormon Church has been under fire. You know, so anywhere that there is you know access to children, that that number of pedophiles starts to like come back into your mind a little bit and go 5%. Like if we were to put that just in a number, I'll do the math for you. That's 185 million worldwide. So <clears throat> that, that number is so large that it's really difficult and challenging to really put in perspective. And for people in America, that would be that, you know, the entire population, every man you've ever seen in America, like that, that number is so big that it would cover every man in America, every boy, right? That that's what that number means in terms of how many people are afflicted with this, uh, with, with pedophilia. And so the challenge is about auditing access is really how we have to approach it. You know, like the Boy Scouts, for example, you mentioned, um, you know, their, their problem was so pervasive that at the very start um, of their organization in 1915, by 1925, they already were keeping files on thousands of pedophiles within their ranks. It was called the perversion files. And the organization as a whole knew, they knew that this was going on and they weren't doing anything about it. They didn't pass it along to authorities. They just kept it. And what the craziest fact is, is that um, Teddy Roosevelt's son, during Teddy Roosevelt's presidency, the 25th anniversary uh, kind of of the Boy Scouts of America happened. And they... Uh, Teddy Roosevelt's son spoke at that event and he suggested this thing. He, he basically kind of outed the idea that the Boy Scouts had what were called, you know, the perversion files at the time, but he actually said the red files. And he was talking about these files that they had been keeping on all of these uh, predators. And what that made the, it, it kind of alarmed the media at the time because, you know, red scare meant communists at the time. And what it provoked the scouting organization to have to do is come to the media and say, no, 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 we're not keeping, we're not keeping files on communists. We're keeping files on, on pedophiles. And yet still nothing was done. And for what, a hundred years now? And they just now broke open the case where, you know, I think they have a class action or a, a tort case of 92,000 uh, boys that came forward whose cases are not, you know, um, outside of the uh, statute of limitations. And so 92,000 came through and, and to file charges. And that's just a, you know, that's a small, I think a small sample just because, um, you know, how underreported this crime is, how difficult it is, and, you know, how many people probably have already uh, passed away by that time. And that's, that's one of the things that really is, uh, that was one of the case studies that I did for the book because it's so, it hits so close to home. Um, you know, I'm a third generation Eagle Scout. My grandfather, my father, and I all went through the scouting organization and got our Eagles. And it was a huge part of my life. And even though, you know, my dad was my scoutmaster and I didn't see any abuse, you know, I didn't, I wasn't abused, but, but there were so many thousands of boys that were that it was such a, a painful realization. You know, it was such a, you always heard the kind of jokes and you thought it was like seventies and eighties, like, oh, there was a bad problem. And then when I started doing the research and found out that at an, at an organizational level that they knew, you know, pretty much the whole time that the, the, that they had a real big problem. And when you look at that, not just isolated, but as a, a symptom of a problem, and then recognize that the same type of institutional protections that the scouting organization, <clears throat> excuse me, kind of implemented is the same thing that the the Catholic Church executes. It's the same thing that keeps you know uh, kind of that uh, a culture of silence and secrecy around even an individual celebrity. Let's say, I mean, there was a I watched a documentary on a guy that was a a huge celebrity in the UK that that uh, that came out uh, and turned out that he was you know uh, he was like this big you know kind of uber celebrity. And then it comes out that, you know, he had been abusing people for years. And it's like, it, 
it's not within our borders. It's not, you know, it's all over the place. It's like, we can't just look at this as an isolated event because, you know, we have celebrities here in America that it's like, they have this culture of silence and secrecy around them. And then all of a sudden, you know, eventually it comes out that no, they were this huge predator this, this, this whole time. And so many people had to have known, you know? And so how do we, how do we at least audit access to children, I think is one of the biggest steps we have to, to make, you know, is to like realize, okay, where are kids congregating? Where are they, you know, what are, we want them to have a great childhood. We don't want them to like live in fear all the time, but like we as adults have to at least implement systems that, you know, at least try to fight against that sheer number of, you know, kind of 185 million people out there that are like trying to figure out how to meet that desire and need. And, um, and they have to do it in secrecy. They have to do it in the shadows because it's not something that's, you know, <laughs> at all acceptable. So um, like you just mentioned about uh, celebrity, like I, uh, Jimmy Fixit. I remember when I was young, he used to Jimmy Fixit for kids. And like it was when he died, but everybody knew it. Like he was into necrophilia and everybody, but he was abusing and he's friends with no King Charles. And we know that Andrew was on Epstein's Island. And like, so the BBC were covering up for him. And then you had Gary Glitter. There's so many of them. And like Gary Glitter was prosecuted, got out and then started, I think he went to Thailand and he just constantly doing it again. And when you go down the kind of celebrity satanic rabbit hole, it looks like it's a rite of passage for all of these people. In in all like, you just look at the Epstein log and in all, all these heroes and all Oprah and presidents and everything. It's like so deep, but people think no. And it's like, if you look at these celebrities, you'd have so much trust and everything. And it's the same with your next door neighbor or with the teacher. You need to know exactly, like you think you know somebody, but you don't know anybody. We barely know ourselves, let alone our next door neighbor. And sometimes you're letting your children have a sleepover. And it's like, is that the best thing to be doing? Right. No, I, I, I completely agree. It's a, it, it's, it's so complex of an issue because it does start at the deck plate with us, uh, you know, as individuals, as a, you know, in our families and, you know, that the, the trope we have, at least here in America is, you know, like everybody has a creepy uncle, right? Like the, there's like this idea that, you know, everyone's got something, right. And it's, and it's like, well, that stereotype wouldn't be around if people actually like came forward and wanted to put a stop to it, you know, like it feels like we're just complacent because no one wants to rock the boat and that that becomes challenging to solve this type of problem and it and it's it's something i addressed at the very beginning of the book is is the fact that no one you know no one likes to openly talk about their sex life right no one even when you're in a healthy relationship you're not out there just like you know most people are not going around just broadcasting uh their sex life and uh most people don't like to talk about trauma they don't you know they don't want to bog people down they don't want to you know dampen the mood they don't want to you know be a downer and you know ruin the vibe um so we we put those two things together and it just creates this incredible you know shadow secrecy situation that we kind of place on ourselves is like you know and then it just permeates right it permeates our culture because if no one likes to talk about sex and no one likes to talk about trauma well when we talk about sexual trauma then now nobody of course wants to talk about that and you know that becomes a really big problem and it becomes you know the the shield that i think that you know just kind of protects the environment of abuse and you know all of the abusers that benefit from these types of environments existing. And that, that goes to all of those types of celebrities and the news pundits that are on the protection, like you were saying about, you know, the BBC and all the system of lawyers that is like just worldwide. And my big question, whenever I hear news pundits kind of like, you know, diminishing the idea that rape cultures exist or anything like that, I just ask the question, like who benefits from these environments existing? Like, it, it, you know, the answer to that question is sickening, you know, and it, and it becomes very, it, it's very easy to spot now that, you know, one that I've just kind of dove down all these rabbit holes, but it's, it's really easy to spot somebody that's like, wait, you're fighting to protect the rape culture that exists around whatever celebrity, right? It doesn't have to be the rape culture that exists over a, a whole country or whatever, because that's really challenging to kind of wrap your head around and really understand. But like, 
if we looked at it around the rape cultures that exist in organizations and, you know, news organizations, right? Fox News had a, a, a big, you know, kind of thing scandal that came out with them that they had a culture that was allowing these types of abusive, toxic relationships to exist where all this abuse was happening and it was being covered up. It's like, who benefits from that environment? Because it's not the people that are surviving the abuse, it's just the abusers. And so like, if we, if we just started to look at, you know, a lot of aspects of our, uh, you know, kind of daily life in that way, I think it, it becomes a little bit more, um, it becomes a space that we can all come together. Those that, uh, those of us that actually want to create solutions and solve this problem so that we can reduce suffering in the world and, you know, reduce this level of environment that trauma is just continually created. It's like those of us that actually care about that can come together and actually fight against it. And then it becomes very easy to spot the people that are in opposition to it, you know, and that I think is one of the biggest um, hurdles, but also one of the biggest uh, things that I think can bring those of us on the front lines fighting this issue hope is that when we stand on one side, like we want to dismantle rape cultures, whoever takes up opposite side, that's like, no, we want, you know, like we now know who the enemy actually is. We know who's, who's actually in opposition here. And that, that becomes a, a very key point to, you know, I think solving some of these issues is to really understand who and what we're fighting. Yeah. Um, you know, cause obviously we're fighting the idea of pedophilia. We're fighting like whoever might be afflicted with that, but that's, that's a very challenging thing to, uh, you know, that's not like people are just walking around wearing that on their sleeve. Um, so we have to kind of extrapolate from behavior and, and really try and identify who is it that's standing in our way of, of dismantling these systems that seem to protect abusers. Um, you know, absolutely. And I mean, you know, you mentioned an uncle or whatever. I mean, if you look at say uncle Joe, the, the, the so-called leader of your country, I mean, it is sickening to watch him sniffing babies, sniffing children. <laughs> it is, it is, it's it's gut crunching just looking at him like and i mean i've seen videos of him and it like it's hard to know now with ai and everything was but it looks like he's 100 percent. i mean you he, he's showing it as it is but if you look at say politicians all around the world and notice lgbt abcd whatever it is with the triangle going into it that's a pedophilia flag and they're pushing that and there's politicians even in ireland and different countries that are kind of saying oh it's okay like what hmm. you're saying is like they're they're basically putting it out there who they're supporting or whoever's got them in their back pocket, whether I know this is kind of on a little tangent, but it looks like to me that a lot of these people, they catch them in the act or they bring them to the parties and then they're their slaves for life. And they're pushing all these horrible agendas because there's no way in a million years you could have every single country rowing the same boat in such an evil way against humanity where all the children and all the people are actually getting hurt, you know, just for a few little people at the top. Yeah. And I, uh, you said something I kind of want to just get clarity on, uh, when you were talking about the, the LGBTQ community, uh, and the flag, what, so the, 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 it was one of the other, uh, podcasters that I know that he, he done an article on it. So the flag that goes in, you know, the different triangle flag that goes into the LGBT. Okay. I don't know if you've seen, yeah, that's a new, it's only appeared in the last year or so. But basically, that's kind of the pedophilia kind of thing that with the colors representing and everything. Yeah. And I, I just want to, I guess, push back a little bit on that idea is that, you know, with the connection of the LGBTQ community to this idea of pedophilia, we have this rampant kind of idea that, you know, uh, in our country right now that the LGBT community Q community is the ones that are like grooming children, right? No, there's a lot of them actually against it. And I just want to clarify that as well. That there's a lot of them saying, Hey, this is sick. What are you trying to do? Right. Right. And so that's, uh, yeah, I just wanted to make that clarification yeah. that, you know, I, in just all of my understanding and research, like there's nothing that suggests um, that, you know, the LGBTQ community are at any more risk than the heterosexual community is for and if anything there's a lot of them actually right. standing out because right. i actually have gay and lesbian friends i've you know and so it's nothing against that it's just the, the way that they're, they're doing it and they're coming out but i have actually seen people standing out from the gay community actually saying you know just like bringing uh the trans into the schools and making them sit down and then even in kindergarten 
like in Germany and around the world as well, they're actually teaching sick stuff. Like they're talking about masturbation at a very early age and anal sex and blowjobs. And I, I mean, this shouldn't be taught at that age. Like it is sick how it's actually done. They're grooming him at an early stage. And that's the education system that's totally corrupt. That's just pushing this as well. It's all kind of connected, unfortunately. Yeah, and I, I find it really, I find that to be a challenging area of conversation too, is, is how do we educate? How do we provide, you know, fundamental sex education at an early age? Because it's like, okay, if we're, if we're in agreement that we need to, you know, teach kids about their anatomy so that they can have the proper vocab to be able to talk about if anybody's, you know, doing inappropriate behavior, um, how do we do that in a way that doesn't get, you know, blown out of proportion by media? That's like, oh, we're trying, you know, we're trying to teach kids, uh, you know, watch porn at, you know, in, you know, when they're three years old or something. And it's like, I, it, cause we have that pushback. We have that conversation here in America too, where people are trying to push, you know, kind of a, uh, sex education reform so that we can actually have some sort of standardized teaching. And we get pushback from all the like family values and religious crowd that, that thinks that what that means is, is like showing kids porn. And it's like, that's nowhere in the the actual education plan that's not in the curriculum. And that's, you know, you fight against it and then you go and get your kid a cell phone. Um, you know, they have access to it already. Yeah. And if we're not going to have a standard of, of education, it's like, what are we you like? We think we're trying to protect our kids from something by not teaching them about something, but like that they're going to learn it anyway. And if we had a standard of education that's teaching them about it, then we could actually try and uh, to mitigate the damage that can be done through, you know, with disinformation and with, with poor education. Like we, we just, we, we have so much access to information now that it, it feels silly to me to just be like, Oh, we have to, we have to put earmuffs on our kids. Um, yeah. you know, because they're going to learn from their friends anyway. So like where I come from, I a hundred percent believe it should be done in a way that like they're told the proper way. But unfortunately, there's a lot of sickening stuff that's going on. I mean, I've seen that. I've seen them. I've seen the books that they're actually passing around and they have in the libraries and schools. And it's like, they should not be there. Like, this is the wrong way to do it. And unfortunately, then you've got two sides of the fence. Like, one is kind of going, we don't want you to talk to our kids. But the problem is, I know myself, that the child will talk to his best friend because his dad or mother is talking to him. And then there's other ones they're told the wrong way and you have to, they're better off told the proper way. Yeah. And I think that we have to come to terms with the fact that the generations that are alive right now have the biggest challenge that I think humans have faced in the entirety of the human existence is that we have generations that are alive right now that are growing up drastically different than previous generations that are still looking at it as like, oh, that's not the way we grew up. And it's like, you know, even from my perspective, uh, I'm almost 40. It was like the way that I grew up, like we didn't have access to all of that information. And yet we still knew at an early age, you know, we, we still had conversations in the peer group and we're telling all these crazy, sick, disturbing jokes at like elementary school level. Like that stuff gets passed around then. I can't even imagine what it would be had we had these devices that connected us to every sick joke and every, you know, disgusting image that's on the, you know, that's on the internet. And to pretend that the abstinence only approach is, is going to solve that problem is, is, is crazy to me because it's like, we have to look at the, the generations and go, okay, you know, if you're above the age of 40 and, and didn't grow up with technology, we have to at least acknowledge that we need new systems in place now for the kids that are growing up with access to the world's traumas, the world's information, you know, there's new technologies that are used to groom your kids that are really challenging to keep up with all of them because there's new things coming down the pipe all the time. And I feel like that conversation is so nuanced and, you know, it would take, you know, a lot of people smarter than me to, to, to really have that conversation. But I think that that's somewhere that we do need to spend a lot of time and focus is like really understanding that kids are just growing up in a different environment that, you know, all the people that are in positions of power to make decisions, most of them didn't grow up in that environment, right? Like the majority of the people that are politicians in our country, 
they didn't grow up in an environment of, of having digital technology everywhere. And yet they're the ones making decisions about these kids' lives and the future of these kids' lives when they have no idea what it was like to grow up like that, you know? And so it's just these two different realities that I think are, uh, you know, it's really challenging because it, it just happens to be, I think it's just a, a natural consequence of this evolutionary period of technology and human existence that we just happen to be living at the time in which there is that, you know, there's just that in between, you know, where, where we're all sharing the planet at the same time uh, of the kind of the old world and the new world existing at the same time. And so it, it's a challenging time to be for sure. Um, but I think it's a really important time. I think that calls for true leadership. I think that's why we need people in positions of authority that can actually, you know, have logical conversations based in, you know, data rather than based in just emotions and, uh, you know, and firing insults at one another. I think that's, uh, you know, on so many levels, but especially when you kind of narrow into this particular issue, it's like, uh, it's really important. And um, I'm just curious as well, because um, I what I've seen is like a lot of the times, because of the trauma, a lot of children, they kind of block it out as if it never happened, and it can resurface or it's just they're living through it. And what I've seen, I've heard of, like, say, people doing the ayahuasca, but breathwork as well, because I've actually witnessed that, that when people facilitated by a, you know, a proper, uh, uh, in a, a safe environment, let's say, doing the breathwork, the emotions come up and then they realize what happened, but they're able to overcome it. And I'm just, I'm not sure if you touched that on the thing, but what's your thoughts on that and like, I suppose if, if there is an issue without even realizing there's an issue kind of opening the... Yeah, I think that's um, that's something that, you know, my wife and I uh, have spent a lot of time around because of the fact that my wife has been a mental health therapist now for 14 years, and uh, she's got a pretty incredible story of recovery herself. Um, you know, she did a TEDx talk here in, uh, in the United States um, in 2013 about this kind of like life-changing power of words because of, you know, she had one therapy session uh, that you know, changed her life because she was a patient of the Mayo Clinic. She was suffering seizures up to nine times a day. Um, you know, she was dystonia and narcolepsy and Tourette's all because of this, like, uh, really traumatic grief from her uh, sister being killed uh, due to the actions of a drunk driver. And that traumatic grief that that sat inside, you know, wrecked havoc on her nervous system. And it ended up creating uh, an incredible uh amount of suffering that led to the breakdown of her entire body. And it wasn't until she, you know, went in and got this, you know, therapy called rapid resolution therapy, which, you know, kind of incorporates um, hypnosis and neuro-linguistic programming um, to really help the mind rewire uh, how it's processing the data of the trauma. Um, and, I think that's that's really important to look at is how are we getting through the trauma? Like, how are we addressing the trauma when it comes up? Because, you know, this was years after uh, the actual accident uh, that took her sister's life that, you know, she started having a seizure and then for years she suffered. And I know that people who are suffering with, you know, you know, through the trauma of, you know, sexual violence, um, it it creates an incredible amount of suffering suffering it, you know, a huge toll on the nervous system. And there's a lot of ways in which that can start to come out. I think that the rise of all of these new alternative ways of helping yourself, like with breath work, with meditation, uh, you know, psychedelics are starting to uh, have uh, kind of a renaissance um, and a reawakening uh, to their incredible healing power. I know that Australia, I think just legalized as a country, uh, psilocybin mushrooms, um, in the therapeutic setting. I know there's a lot of, you know, a couple of states here in America that are, that are doing, that have done the same. Um, I'm, ex I'm extremely excited about where that uh, can go for people who, who have complex traumas, um, you know, especially in the world of uh, sexual violence, but also uh, the other area that I really care about, which is veterans and, and taking care of people who have, you know, experienced the, the brutalities of war, um, I think they, they really need something that helps effectively. I don't think it's, 
I don't think it's actually humane or ethical. I don't think we should, I think we should like change the way we look at that is, is putting somebody in therapy for, you know, a decade, two decades of like sitting there and talking about the most painful things that have happened when there are other modalities out there and other ways of dealing with trauma that it doesn't have to be, uh, you know, lifelong suffering uh, in order to try to move the needle a little bit. And, you know, with these, you know, you know, I've done ayahuasca myself and it was the the most powerful healing experience I've ever had in my life. Um, I've also had rapid resolution therapy that helped me process and deal with, you know, the death of my dad. Um, and, you know, it, I think that there are modalities out there that I wish I could scream from the rooftops. I know that psychedelics are one that is challenging because, you know, it's so tied into this, you know, uh, conditioning process of it being like drugs. Um, but I think that, the renaissance of that is going to bring forth so much uh, relief for so many people. Um, you know, again, is it for everybody? Probably not, but uh, will it help a lot of people? I, I truly, truly believe it will. Um, yeah. So. And you just, and like I, you just mentioned about the death of your father. I know you were a young teenager when that happened, but it actually, it, it was in your arms, I believe. And so you might just touch on that because the fact that it helped you such, you know, a trauma at a young age to, to, to yeah, to that, that trauma was, uh, was, has really defined a lot of my life in a lot of ways. My dad was a, he was a stay at home dad and he was, you know, he was, he operated a, a murder mystery dinner theater. He was in a rock band. Uh, he was my kind of sports coach. He was my, you know, scout master of my boy scout troop. He was like super involved in my life. And, um, you know, he was just this incredibly passionate, creative guy. And um, when, you know, I was, I had just turned 15, I was at a Boy Scout summer camp and, and I went on a, a, an 18 mile hike at the end of the week to, to prepare myself for a hundred mile trek I was doing that summer. And so I had like 60 pounds on my back. I was walking 18 miles. The last two were up the side of this mountain, but uh, on that particular hike, um, the guy that was in charge leading us kind of led us on a wrong path two miles off track. So it ended up being four miles once we got back onto the right track added to that trip. So it was 22 miles, you know, total. Uh, it was a pretty long hike that day. We ran out of water, um, you know, like kind of halfway through. And so we were pretty dehydrated by the time we got to the top and I was exhausted. And, uh, it was kind of the first time I had done like a really long hike with that much weight on my back. And so I was pretty exhausted. And my dad, uh, met us at the top. He, there was this lodge and uh, it's Mena, Arkansas. There's this mountaintop lodge there. And uh, we always used to meet there, bring all the rest of the troop so that kids could get food at the top. They've been eating camp slop all week. And uh, he comes up, takes the backpack off my back and was just like, you know, kind of giving me shit about being so late. And, um, and then he just collapsed. And then he just had a heart attack and died right there in my arms. And it became like, uh, you know, it was, a, it was a really, really painful experience, of course. Uh, but that trauma was so kind of deeply ingrained. It, it impacted my life in a lot of ways. And um, my wife, actually, uh, before we were dating, before we were friends, I reached out to the community, uh, you know, of therapists in Seattle. And she happened to be one that I, I went and uh, sat with and was like, and she did a session of rapid resolution therapy and it, and it, it drastically helped me deal with the, the traumatic images of, you know, kind of going into the hospital and, and see, you know, cause when I got down, we, you know, the ambulance took him down. And, uh, when we finally got down to the bottom, I kind of burst through the hospital door. The doctor was trying to keep me back, but I was just this little 15 year old kid. I was like, you know, let me see my dad. And I burst through these doors and, um, there he was just kind of laying on an operating table, like cold steel table with tubes all in his mouth and his eyes open and, and he just wasn't there anymore. And so, uh, it was just a really hard memory and visual to live with and rapid resolution therapy. It's interesting because as I'm talking, like the, the processing that, that we did in therapy, the, the images that, uh, we worked on helping that memory be just a, uh, kind of an image, like a Polaroid that like floats out to sea and it doesn't really have that much weight anymore like it, it it's it's still there in terms of how my brain processes it pretty wild uh, all these years later but it's so helpful you know if there's anything i could just shout from the rooftops to your audience right now is if they're if they're suffering if they you know because i know that trauma is so widespread and it doesn't have to be just sexual abuse or you know the grief of loss but trauma happens in all different ways but 
rapid resolution therapy is, is, is really, really profound. I know there's uh, practitioners, you know, all over the world, but uh, if you look up Dr. John Connolly, he's in Florida, he's the, the, the pioneer, the founder of it. You know, um, I owe so much to that man, uh, not only for saving my wife's life, but uh, you know, it's, it, his ripple effect ended up, you know, really helping me as well. And, you know, I've, I've seen it with my wife and how she's helped thousands of people. And so like it, the biggest message I have about recovery from trauma is that it doesn't have to be lifelong. It doesn't, it, you know, we're, we're kind of conditioned by the psychological community that, oh, you need to go to therapy and sit in therapy for years and years and years and years and pay thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars. Uh, and that just doesn't sound fun or pleasant to anybody when it comes to addressing their trauma. And so the biggest message I have is it doesn't have to be that way. Um, you know, there are modalities out there. There are practitioners right now practicing, uh, that, that can really dramatically impact your life in a very short amount of time. And, um, it's, it's incredibly worth it. Yeah. Excellent. And listen, John, cause you know, I, I mentioned earlier that, uh, you know, we, we, we'd set aside an hour for this and I know we can go way deeper. So I definitely have to get you back because we've only touched the surface of your book and everything. So you have to come back fast and, uh, you might let people know how I'm just one thing that I want to say as well, with your book that I saw that the, the ebook was, I don't know what it always be that, but it was like five bucks, which I actually commend you on. Cause I know you get to choose that because, uh, you know, I, I've, I've been involved with the different books and different things and most people charge the same price. So oh, wow. it's, it is, yeah, it is amazing that you're actually doing that. It means that the message is more important than anything. So, you know, yeah, well, sure. yeah sure. so brilliant. I, I wish I could get this message out without it being like about me, right? Without it, without it being about me, I wish we could get this message out because, you know, I didn't put, you know, I tried not to put a picture in the book of me because I, I really want it to be about the message and, and, and really about the information uh, rather than about just like building some sort of profile or persona for myself. Um, but yeah, I think that if you go to seanhamilton.com, S-H-A-U-N-H-A-M-I-L-T-O-N.com, um, you know, there you can access, you know, a lot of just different information about me, but also uh, get access to the book if that's something you want to pick up, either in the ebook or the print version. I'm going to have an audio book coming uh, as well, um, as well as just uh, the different works and and different things. Because one of the things in the book that I talk about is is how to use art to help yourself heal from these types of traumas, so that we can kind of you know push this energy into a place of it being a little bit healthy uh, rather than it just kind of sitting inside. And so my next work is uh, is a is a graphic novel kind of combined with a, a an actual novel about creating this series of um, you know this group of special ops that go out and kind of. Uh, take care of the world in terms of, you know, eliminating these high profile, powerful predators that exist that I believe kind of like we were talking about, you know, just kind of have the, their, their chokehold on the system in terms of keeping these environments around for them to uh, operate in. And so uh, it's just my way of kind of a fantasy way of, uh, of dismantling that. And so that's a, that's a work coming in the future. So if, if that's something that interests you, then uh, please sign up for the, uh, you know, kind of to be notified of when that's ready. Okay, excellent. Listen, John, totally enjoyed the conversation. I'll make sure I put the links both on the audio and the video. And basically with comments as well, so people that are listening to this, because we're definitely getting you back, we'll go deeper into this. But thank you very much. Hey, thank you, Roy. So that's all for the Awakening Podcast. You'll find all our episodes on awakeningpodcast.org. As mentioned, from YouTube, you'll find the links in the podcast description. You'll find my other podcasts along with my coach and bio.link forward slash podcaster. Be sure to give us a thumbs up, five star rating, really helps. Share with your friends. Until next week, take care.